Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets in the car, while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Got menopause? We've got you. Hi, Jackie here, founder of ExoJackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, ExoJackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at exojacqui.com. Made for women by women. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. On October 3rd, 2003, an audience of 1,500 men, women, and children were settling into the theater at the Mirage Resort and Casino in Las Vegas for an evening of magic, spectacle, and delight. The world-famous German magicians, known simply as Siegfried and Roy, took to the stage that night for what would be their 5,750th show at the Mirage. One of the hallmarks of the duo's act was the use of exotic animals like elephants, lions, cheetahs, and tigers. Siegfried and Roy had worked with exotic animals on stage for 44 years in a career that spanned over 30,000 performances. Until that infamous evening, in 2003. To the horror of the audience and the crew backstage, Roy Horn was bit that night during their act by a 400-pound white tiger named Manticore and dragged off stage by the neck. Trainers intervened and ultimately saved Roy's life, but the magician suffered a stroke, severe blood loss, and paralysis. Roy Horn would require multiple surgeries and intensive rehabilitation. My guests today, Chris Jones and Michael Mooney, wrote the article unearthing the backstory and the fallout of the tragedy for The Atlantic. Jones and Mooney are journalists that collectively have written for Rolling Stone, GQ, Esquire, and The Wall Street Journal magazine. The two writers combined their talents to construct the jaw-dropping article entitled The Original Tiger Kings, The Improbable Rise and Savage Fall of Siegfried and Roy. I'm Chris Jones. I'm Michael Mooney. When you guys worked together, had you ever worked together before? This is for Chris. Uh, no, we were good friends. Right. And you knew each other. 
yeah, we knew each other and I was a big admirer of Mooney's work. In fact, I first knew Mooney because I read two, he wrote two great stories back to back within a month. And I emailed him and I was like, who, who are you? Because these are great. Now, Michael Mooney, when these things happen, are most of them pitches that you make? Are they commissions where someone comes to you, an editor that you've worked with? Use this particular piece you wrote. This was for The Atlantic. And how does this come about? Is it a commission or you pitch? It's about 50-50. So this one originated with the editors of The Atlantic. This one was one of their ideas, especially after Tiger King, the Netflix show, was so popular. This seemed like a natural follow. But honestly, it really is about half and half. The story I did for The Atlantic right before this was a crime story that I pitched them. And when you pitch, Chris, is it like sometimes you just say a name? Sometimes you say a murderer? Sometimes you say a performer's name and they go, I'm in. How does the pitch work with an editor when you're pitching? Sometimes it's a name. Sometimes literally a pitch is one line. And sometimes it's a more elaborate thing. I mean, one of the things that young journalists need to understand about this business you know, I was a staff writer at Esquire for 14 years. They were paying me a salary. And I was probably one for 20 on my pitches, I would guess. Like they would reject 19 of my ideas. And they were paying me to write. And so for a freelancer pitching, it's it's tough. And sometimes you really have to convince somebody that this is a story. But sometimes it can Give just me an be... example. What's a story that it was an uphill battle for you, if you can? Oh, yeah. I can tell you one right now that I depict again and again was Roger Ebert, the film critic. You know, he had cancer and he uh, lost the ability to speak and eat and drink. And he sort of reemerged as a blogger. He, he had I sort remember. of this, remember he had that like yeah, he had this amazing blog and and he was such a beautiful writer. I think people knew him as a TV person, but he had he was a Pulitzer Prize winning critic before that sort of iteration of himself. And then through sort of tragedy, personal tragedy, he he became something else. It was, it was yeah. like this metamorphosis that happened. And I really wanted to write about him. And writing about a writer is always sort of a little <laughs> tricky. It's like it's, it's hard to make a movie about a writer because so much, so much of it is internal. So I had to pitch Roger, I would say I pitched him four or five times. And then the only reason Esquire assigned me that story in the end is I was, I was literally supposed to write about Taylor Swift and she backed out. And so there was suddenly a hole in the magazine and so I'll be forever grateful <laughs> for Taylor yeah. Swift uh, for backing out because the Rogers story was a hugely important story for me personally and professionally. It did very well, but it was also a hugely moving gratifying. experience for me. Yeah, gratifying. Now, and, and it's interesting because you're in the bullpen there just throwing balls all day long, waiting for them to call you in. And when you're on as a staff writer. Now, Michael, when it's a commission, whether you're a staff writer or no, when someone comes to you, if you're on the staff, I guess you try to be as cooperative as you can because you know, they're paying you for that. It's your job. But if it's a commission, is there any metric or is there any sense of what's a fast no? Like if someone comes to you and says, we want you to write a story about, you know, the Will Smith Oscar slap. And you sit there and go, oh, my God, it's been covered to fucking death here. When they're coming to you, what's the last thing you want to hear? Something that's timely? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Honestly, it's a magazine story. Something that's super timely. You want to write about John Wilkes Booth's last meal. <laughs> yeah. Anything in the last decade. Yeah. I mean, there, there's also uh, all sorts of pitfalls for in the magazine world, right? I, I don't want to write something that, like, I become the guy who does something terrible, right? Like, oh, you want to send somebody who literally, like, lives in trash for a week? Yes, this is the guy. Like, go. <laughs> Stunt right? journalism. Stunt journalism. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So in, in the magazine world, if you if, if you write about something or, or a certain way and people like that story, other editors immediately want a version of that story. Yeah. I did a, a couple of write arounds where, you know, if, if you can't interview the person, then you have to interview a 150 people who know that person. Right. Siegfried and Roy didn't talk yeah. to us for this story. But uh, also, you know, I, in Texas, I, I was assigned a story about the Texas Rangers manager, Ron Washington, when they were in the World Series a couple of times in the off season. And he lives in New Orleans and really just famously does not give interviews in New Orleans and does not share his private life in that way. And I went to his house and, and he didn't want to talk to me. But so then I had to talk to, you know, I think probably 25 or 30 people who have worked with him and known him through the years. But then you become a write around person and every magazine's like, you know, who won't talk to us. You want to do this story? You know who will never, ever sit down for you and answer any question that you're curious about? Why don't you write about that person? They'll say that to you. Is that, to a degree, your methodology, Michael, where when you talk to people, you just don't press and hope they give it to you? Yeah, that's exactly right. You just have a human-to-human conversation. And then, honestly, often the questions that you're most curious about are things that they end up bringing up. You know, most people, if you're sitting down for an interview, they know why they're there. You know, they they know the biggest questions in life that you're probably going to ask anyway, and they've probably prepared some sort of answer in their mind. And uh, if you start with that, that is going to be very off-putting, just like any conversation would if it's not recorded or it's not for a, you know, a magazine story. One of the most underrated skills, and I don't mean just for journalists, for human beings, is listening. Mm-hmm. Nobody listens. And you can get someone who's famous or someone who's not famous, who's the subject of a story because something terrible or wonderful happened to them. No one in their life just sits down and listens to them. And so if you're that person, if you can get them to sort of almost forget that you're a journalist and that you're just there to hear their story and then relay their story, you become sort of a trusted advocate for them. And then it's a a different experience. It's not an interrogation, it's a conversation. And even in your regular life, like I say this to people all the time, if you wanna become the favorite person in your friend group, be the one who sits there and listens. Be the one who just lets people talk. It was interesting, actually, if Mooney and I interviewed people together, yes, which I'd never course, done before. Yeah. And describe what that was like, Chris. What was it like for you? It worked really well, I think. And what sort of naturally happened, I think I was the bad cop in the interrogations and Mooney was the good cop. Because I tend to laser in on a detail and I get really sort of excited and focused. I, I want this information. I need this bit of color. I need this. I need to know what the weather was like. I need to know what you were wearing. You know, I need this information to paint the scene. And Mooney was, Mooney's a very genial presence, like anyway, and he's got a smile on his face. And Mooney would just say something like, oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. And then that encourages people to keep talking because they want to, they want to please you, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's like an old reporter trick is to fake write stuff in your notebook. You're not, you're just scribbling. But someone sees you write something down and they go, oh, he liked that. I want to give him more of that because wow. it's, it's just sort of an interesting. So Mooney and I talking to, to people together, I thought, okay, how's this going to work? And it worked out great because we have slightly different styles, but we got all the information we needed using them together. Yeah, similar sensibilities. Like we understand yeah. stories the same way. So we know what totally we Totally the same way. But yeah, I, but I, I also just, I mean, it's hard not to just be incredibly enthralled. It's one of the problems with the the challenge of the story of figuring out the right way to tell it because it's every element of it was so just enthralling, right? Yeah. People open little windows 
And with this story, they would open a little window and you it would be a whole world. You know, it's just like, yeah. oh, by the way, lions are harder to train than tigers. Well, that's a whole thing. Yeah. And, and you're like, well, tell me about that. So Siegfried and Roy, for most people of a certain age, that this was Jack Hanna meets Elton John. Jack Hanna, who was the animal guy on Johnny Carson all the time. Here these two guys come, and it's like Liberace with a whip in one hand and a chair in the other. You know what I mean? Like these two guys come, and you can't believe. Describe for us, we'll start with Michael, what did you think of Siegfried and Roy going in, and what did you begin to discover about them? I mean, I was interested in a couple of different tracks of their lives. Their relationship, I thought, was really interesting. Their relationship to animals was this kind of thing that could not exist in 2022. Why? There have been so many uh, Sea Worlds and Ringling Brothers. Our society has kind of collectively, in the last couple of years, decided that huge animals just can't be used for entertainment. In that Ringling same Brothers old gone. Way. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. And, and, you know, we're going to look back at that time where we would all get together and go see giant animals perform tricks for us. A hundred years from now, people are going to look back at that, and that's going to seem so bizarre. What about you, Chris? It's funny. First, I got to say that I'm so pissed off at your descriptions because I wish we used them in the story. Liberace with a whip and a chair. That's good. <laughs> with, with a whip in one hand and a chair in the other. God damn it. And Jack Hanna meets Elton John. God damn it. Um, yeah, really, I thought the same thing. That you was, sit here going, shit. I'm a big magic nerd, and I'm a huge Vegas nerd. I love Las Vegas and everything about it, even though I know rationally it's a terrible place. Like five million people should not be living with slot machines in the desert. But a very good writer, a friend of mine named Charlie Pierce, once he was writing about a racehorse and he said a great horse builds its own universe. And there are certain people who create a whole new world around themselves. And it doesn't happen very often, but you get these people who just build not just a building or a monument, but they build an existence that previously did not exist. And Siegfried and Roy did that. They built themselves into a kind of celebrity that probably won't happen again, in a place and a time that probably won't happen again. And the idea of exploring that little Siegfried and Roy planet for me was all I needed. I've noticed that in the world of show business, there seems to be a magnetic field around people who the indulgence, the grandiosity, even the camp, the imperiousness, you know, over-the-top, outrageously kind of monarchical kind of performers. You know, the two of them were kind of like royalty in the world they lived in. The more you exude that, the more you get away with it. You act like you're the greatest goddamn thing in the history of Las Vegas, and those people that don't get it are idiots. And you see where it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a certain way. Then they just become bigger and bigger. And then you turn around, and they got 250 people working for them, correct? Correct. Yeah. When you first went to the facility, what is it called again in the, in the article? The Secret Garden. <laughs> of course it is. Did you go together to the Secret Garden for the first time or individually? I went before he did, but then we went together as well. And when you went, Michael, describe what it was like. It's really just cats in cages and like, you know, the regular Las Vegas fanny pack crowd walking around. They monetized it. You buy tickets. 25 bucks. $25 to get in. And, you know, if you have kids in Las Vegas, there aren't that many things for kids to do. So it's a disproportionate number of families. And then at the end of the day, right before they were moved back to their homes behind the casino, a lion on one side of a wall and a tiger on the other side of a wall started roaring back and forth. And, you know, I'm 10, 25 feet away, 
and you can hear the lion roaring. You could feel it in the bones in your torso. Oh, yeah. Right. It, it was such a primal, you know, sensation. And honestly, the first thought that I had was like, this is really magic, right? This is something that's happening in front of humans that we truly do not understand. You can only get here. You've got to yeah. come here to see this. What year did you first go, the two of you? Well, this year. You just went. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We went together earlier this year. I went last year for the first time. Oh, no, it's there now. So Hard Rock is bought the Mirage and they're going to renovate it. And the, the fate, there's 14 remaining animals of Siegfried and Roy's. Out of how many? 55, 58, something at the, right. at the top of their menagerie. Now, of course, one assumes that the whole thing is destined to die out when they die and that it can't go on without them. But how much before the attack on him. That happened when again? He was attacked by the tiger what year? 2003. So 2003, 20 years ago. And he lived how much longer after that? 17 years. He lived 17 years. Because like many people, there's a sick part of you that's always trying to find Siegfried and Roy Tiger attack video. Where's the video? Where's the video? To ascertain just how significantly he was mauled. It's one of those Mandela effects things. So many people believe that they've seen this video that they have not seen, right? It's right. never been made public. I thought I'd seen the video. We both thought we'd seen the video, yeah. We have not seen the video. And you haven't. No, no And there has. is no video. No, no, there's video. Oh, there is, but no one knows where it is. Well, the guy who presently owns it, Steve went with Bobby Baldwin, right, Mike? He was the latest that we know in the chain of custody had a, had a version of it, yeah. Was he a videographer? No, no. He owned. He was the person who was in, put in charge of the Mirage after Steve Wynn, and he and also famous poker player and and you know. So uh, Steve Wynn had it. So Siegfried and Roy recorded every show, so they could watch it afterwards. Well, Siegfried, so Siegfried could watch it afterwards and study the tape. So they recorded every show just out of habit, and Steve Wynn had a copy of the tape that passed along to Bobby Baldwin when Wynn sold the casino, and Steve Wynn thinks it was destroyed, but it's unclear. But no one in normal civilian life has seen it. Millions of people think they have seen it. Yeah, one USDA agent during an investigation got a moment to watch it one time, yeah. and it, it never was made public. And I spent a long time trying to track it down and seeing if I could potentially get a hold of it. Now, apart from the video, it's interesting. What I think is interesting when you talk about Siegfried and Roy with a lot of people is they think the tiger killed him. Right, yeah. They right. think Roy died in 2003. Right. And then you tell them that he died of covid and they're like, what are you talking about? The right. COVID just happened. Well, yeah, that's when he died. Now, when, when after he's attacked, he doesn't come back to the show in any function whatsoever after that, correct? He never appears publicly again, correct? He would appear in public in, in very, very rare occasions. The show was canceled immediately. He spent a year in the hospital. He spent another year in some sort of halfway house situation, rehab. But the show died that day. It was over. Yeah, curtains closed. Siegfried announced the show was over, and it was over, over. And Siegfried never, never conceived of going on on his own, bringing in a kind yeah. of a second banana assistant. No way he wanted to go on. Yeah, he, he knew that the animals were Roy's thing, and that without the animals, their show was Siegfried and Roy. And he knew, or you know, and, and the, he had been contemplating. He was older. He was a couple of years older, and he had been talking about the fact that they needed to slow down, they needed to retire anyway, right? This show was incredibly physically demanding, right. where each one of them is running basically five miles per show, because, you know, when you disappear and reappear somewhere, that's not actually disappearing and reappearing. That's sprinting somewhere yeah. in, in, a, in a darkness yeah. where nobody can see you. 
So in this write-around approach, you have to talk to other people to find out everything because did, did you find any interviews with Siegfried and or Roy where they spoke publicly that you looked at? Did they go on the record with anybody or they never talked to anybody? Yeah, they did a couple interviews over the years. You know, they were on, uh, Siegfried was on Barbara Walters at one point. They yeah. did a lot of that kind of stuff. And then through the years, uh, people that they worked for would come forward with versions of the incident that they didn't necessarily agree with. So then they would do some sort of public counter interview where they said that they felt very sorry for this trainer, this former trainer of theirs that had this version that didn't match theirs. They felt very sorry for that person's life or something like that. Very Siegfried and Roy way of responding to criticism. So they were in public and they had their their shows had been recorded and, and made into DVDs and public things like that. But the public never got what they were like in some sort of personal world, right? That was never, they were so closed off from that. Yeah, there was there was no transparency there. No, they're difficult yeah. subjects. I mean, you know, the secret garden is a metaphor in a lot of ways because half the stuff they kept secret and the other half, I mean, there was a lot of bullshit. And so it's, they're tough subjects as journalists, especially for a place like the Atlantic where I know journalism sometimes takes some knocks about information and misinformation. The Atlantic is, it's exhaustingly thorough in terms of facts. And More than the New Yorker, I, should, I would assume they're on par. I would guess they're on part. Here, Alec, you won't remember this. I wrote a story about you for the Atlantic, and uh, I, I was at the. We were at the Saturday Night Live, right? And you were doing the table read, right? And Lauren Michaels was eating what appeared to me to be snow peas out of a little bowl, and I'm like yeah. 50 feet away, and I'm like, okay. So I had this little detail in my Atlantic story about you that Lauren Michaels is eating snow peas. I get a call from the fact checker who goes, "That was edamame." I'm going to change that to yeah. edamame. Like yeah. that's how. Come on, Chris. Yeah. Okay. How, how, how could you think he was eating snow peas? But that's the rigor of the Atlantic. Sure. And so to write about Siegfried and Roy for the Atlantic, because so much of it was either secret or nonsense. And decades ago. And decades ago, yeah. it was very difficult. They're hard subjects. Writers Chris Jones and Michael Mooney. You can find a link to their Atlantic article on Siegfried and Roy in the show notes of this episode. If you enjoy conversations about intensive journalistic investigations, check out my episode with Lawrence Wright, author of Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief. If you and I were sitting in a Scientology auditing session right now, and you're my auditor, and you know, and I'm holding the cans which are attached to the e-meter, and you're probing, asking me very personal questions about my life, things that I would not want to disclose to anyone else except in this very confidential, confessional atmosphere. Excruciatingly yeah. so. Material that is actually secretly recorded, sometimes videoed, and then it becomes apparent to you that if you decide to leave, the church may use some of that against you. And I talked, heard to, that. I talked to a guy whose assignment was to go through all those old auditing sessions on John Travolta and find stuff they could use against him because they were worried that he was going, he was going to go over the wall. Yeah, right. To hear more of my conversation with Lawrence Wright, go to heresthething.org. After the break... Chris Jones and Michael Mooney share the fate of Manticore, the white tiger that nearly took Roy Horn's life.
Hey guys, Rob Parker here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like the rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail dominating power and captivating style the new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true and with the new available tech this legendary truck is getting even better and when you buy a Toyota truck you buy Toyota dependability meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future so visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. I'm Alec Baldwin and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In retrospect, the spectacle of Siegfried and Roy's wildlife menagerie is almost too outrageous to believe. And its fate seemingly all too inevitable. I wanted to know if Roy Horn ever expressed any regret or responsibility for the circumstances that led to his own mauling. Not even close. He went the other direction at top speed. You know, he very quickly started telling people that the tiger had saved his life, that he was having a stroke on the stage. The tiger noticed something was wrong with him and lifted him up by the throat to carry him off. And that the, the puncture of his aorta 
had relieved pressure in his brain and saved his life. And in fact, that this tiger, when, when the tiger was born, had been what was what born not breathing or something like yeah, that. Yeah, needed to be resuscitated. Yeah, and that Roy had personally mouth-to-mouth saved this tiger as a cub. And so the tiger was returning the favor. So it was totally the opposite It was a service animal. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. literally they said that the animal sensed in some bizarre telepathic way that he was struggling. Siegfried didn't say that, but Roy was, Roy that was that. his. And even people really close to them believed that something was off with Roy that night. You know, I, I, nobody else went as far as to say that the tiger saved his life. But, you know, so there are some elements that are, that are confirmed. And some, this is kind of the nature of telling a story about these people, is it's so hard to figure out what is completely, you know, like a, a fabulous creation what is completely grounded in the truth, what years things happen. You know, everything blends into some kind of miasma of fantasy and fairy tale that's fantastic to delve into and terrible to go through fact-checking about. I feel like the story about the Roy story for the tiger was very identifiable as bullshit. No tiger in in the history of the world has saved a human life. That's not what tigers do. So, yeah. After he was attacked, did a horn recover all of his motor skills? Could he talk and walk at all? He could sort of talk. One of his sides was essentially paralyzed. Whether it was happening before the tiger attacked him or after, he, had, he suffered from a series of strokes. And a lot of oxygen, his brain was deprived of oxygen because his airway was crushed. The tiger got him around the throat and crushed it. Tigers have enormous, what was it? A thousand pounds per square inch. They have enormous bite force. Sure. And also surprisingly, the largest teeth, the largest canine teeth of any predator. So the strokes caused him to have sort of permanent paralysis on one of his sides. He could speak, but you know, he had a thick German accent anyway. And then it was sort of indistinct, I would describe it. What happened to the cat? What happened to Montecor? So he was put back on display. He just went back to his regular cat life. He, they used a different name so that people didn't identify. And then years later, when they kind of tried to do one quick night of a, of a re, reunion type show for a fundraiser, they said that that cat was in the show again. Montecor, but it wasn't. So they put another yeah, right. cat in there and called it Montecor. Exactly. Yes. yes. A cat who was very famously docile. Right. And Montecor never had another issue. No, many thousands of people went to the Secret Garden and saw Montecor thinking it was a cat named Jaipur. But they they saw Montecor. They saw the cat that attacked Roy. Now, Siegfried is left there now, and the printing press, the cash cow for the show, is over. What does he want to do? Meaning, did he want to just shut everything down and divest? Did he want to just keep Secret Garden running as an attraction? What did he think his career would be for the remaining? He was 64 at the time of the attack. I think he was thinking about winding things down, but I don't think he had envisioned what his life would be like after the show. And so he had a period where he tried to live like a normal civilian and I think in some weird way saw the magic of ordinary life. Like he would travel or he would go grocery shopping, which is not something he did. The Atlantic couldn't verify this, and it's one of my favorite facts, so it's not in the story, but apparently he was obsessed with like the grocery store scanner, like barcodes. How do they work? You know, like it, that to him was like, never mind sawing a lady in half. How does it know how yes. much my beans are? That's crazy. Yes. And so Siegfried would see sort of the crazy stuff in everyday life. And then he started going back to the secret garden and he would wander around until someone recognized him. He still had this void. Like one of the interesting things about Siegfried and Roy was definitely the extrovert. Apparently, if Roy was in a room, you knew he was in the room. Siegfried got a lot of energy, needed praise and needed adoration. 
but he didn't particularly want to be around people. Like he would put on a mask before a Siegfried and Roy show and wander around the crowd as a greeter, no one knowing he was Siegfried, right. just so he could get the buzz. Siegfried never took off the mask. Siegfried no no one knew that off. was Siegfried. Siegfried but, really? but then, and the secret garden, my favorite part of the whole story, I think, is he would go to the secret garden. He would wander around. Someone would recognize him. He would pretend like he never went there. Oh, my God, you've caught me the one time I've been here in the last 20 years. He would go there every day. That's a very Vegas thing, by the way. Very, very Vegas. So yeah. Like, oh, how lucky it is that we're all here together. And yeah. then he would do little sleight of hand coin magic. Which is how he started, like when he was five, his dad was this drunk, ruined German soldier. And the first time Siegfried said his dad acknowledged his presence was when I he made that. a coin disappear. Yeah. 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 And so in this beautiful sort of full circle way, without the cats, well, surrounded by the cats in their cages, but without any of the sort of excess, he would do this little sleight of hand magic for these tiny audiences at the secret garden. And that would be it. He would give them the coin. And then he would be like, this is a very special coin. He had bags of thousands of them, you know, in the back because he would come there every day. But it was this beautiful, like, little tiny, you know, almost like a little drip of his former fame. The thing that won over his father. The thing yeah, that won over exactly. his dad. It's very much for me like a Flowers for Algernon kind of story where he he's the small thing. It builds, it builds, it builds, it builds, it builds. Because their only answer to fame was more. Their only answer to, like, how do we make this more spectacular? More. More cats, more fireworks, more smoke, bigger yeah. cod pieces, you know. And then it all falls away instantly. Uh, and he finds, he goes back to what he was before, which is a sleight-of-hand coin magician. I'm so admiring of the two of you. You guys are doing, because I'm obsessed with these pieces. You know, you nail it when you say, this couldn't exist today. You know, when that ended, a whole era of that live entertainment died. I remember a writer did this profile on Wayne Newton. And they're sitting in the audience with a stopwatch. And Newton says, okay, good night, everybody. Thank you. He goes, no, no, no. You know something? We're going to do something we never do. We're going to do another number. Come on, everybody. Tie a yellow ribbon round. Whatever he sings. This was even part of their show. The part of the show that, ha that the mauling happened at was called The Rapport. And it was like a quiet little interlude in the magic show. And they would start it by saying, this is the first time this tiger has ever been on stage in front of people. Montecourt had done thousands of shows. And the night of the mauling, he was still introduced as, you know, th this is the first time on stage. Would, would, would you welcome this tiger? Because they wanted people to feel super special. Like they knew who was going to see them. And they knew that the people who would see them multiple times would forgive them, that kind of thing. But the vast majority of people who encountered Siegfried in the Secret Garden, it felt like they had stepped upon one of the most special days they possibly could have been in an animal exhibit behind a casino in Las Vegas. I want to ask you both one question. So Janet Malcolm, she writes the article that becomes the book, The Journalist and the Murderer. Uh, she's writing about the Jeffrey McDonald and uh, Joe McGinnis case. This is a legendary quote. Every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He is a kind of confidence man preying on people's vanity ignorance or loneliness, gaining their trust and betraying them without remorse. And I'm wondering for you guys, do you think just as Siegfried and Roy are, have gone their way and they don't, and, and, and their time has passed, is what she's saying true about writers like you? Has that gone past and you're not confidence men? Or is what she describing about writers who do the pieces you do, does it still apply? 
I hate that fucking quote. <laughs> Total horseshit. Total I horseshit. Fucking right. hate right. it. Right. The way she constructs that sentence is like, this is what I think. This is my experience. And if you disagree, you're a moron or a liar. Right. It's like, well, so what option are you giving me to counter your argument? Which I think is not true. There is a certain kind of journalist, certainly, who's predatory and career aspirational and all the bad things that all the, the Rita Skeeters of the world from Harry Potter, like those journalists absolutely exist. I am not that kind of journalist. Mooney is not that kind of journalist. We spend time with people who deserve to have their stories told. I've always tried to approach people kindly, generously. I listen. I am careful. I convey information in a way that is hopefully entertaining, but is also factually accurate. I think sometimes people appreciate being written about when I write about them and when Mooney writes about them. The story becomes something they keep. The best stories, the subject reads the story and learns something about themselves. But I wrote a story about a woman, a genius, an astrophysicist at MIT, who, my eldest son, Charlie, has autism. And I was hanging out with Sarah, Dr. Sarah Seeger, her name is. And I was in my head, I'm going, well, you're clearly autistic. When you have a, when you're close to someone with autism, you can spot someone with autism from a thousand yards away. It's the way they walk, the way they hold their hands. There's just tells. So in my head, I'm going, you are clearly, you clearly have autism. She had never been diagnosed with autism. She had no idea about this essential facet of herself. And she only learned it through the process of spending time with me and the story. And so for me, that's like this idea that we're all terrible people doing terrible things, I think is so insulting of a profession that at its best is a noble and good profession. Our job is to tell people about themselves and to make strangers, to transport people to different worlds, to show them behind the curtain of things they need to know about. I think it can be a really beautiful profession. And so the idea that we're all killers drives me mental. Writers Chris Jones and Michael Mooney. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend and be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Chris Jones shares some of the unexpected gifts that can come from writing celebrity profiles. Hey guys, it's Ray from the Bobby Bone Show here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Let's go! Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the hills to the trails all over. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander, with three spacious rows of seating, up to eight passengers, yeah. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer, check out amazing national sales event deals on RAV4s, Highlanders, and more. Visit buyatoyota.com, that's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. 
Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself, but we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees, every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. I first met Chris Jones in 2017 when he was covering me for a profile in The Atlantic. Learning more about the many challenges that come with the deep-dive reporting that Michael Mooney and Chris Jones are known for, I wondered what pieces rank among the most difficult they've ever written. I mean, this one was one of the hardest uh, I've ever done. Why? Because it's so many different stories, right? Their story is a love story. It's an animal story. It's also like the story of Las Vegas. When they got to Las Vegas, it was Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra. And when their show ended, it was a totally different place. You know, there were so many secrets involved. It's a story about grandiosity. Um, you know, you want the text to match the feel of the story in some oh, sort of way, too. Interesting. You know, it's such a challenge. It's also two people's lives over six decades. There's so much information. There's so many secrets and so many levels of reality in a story like this where they built their own fairy tale life and figuring out what was what. You know, there's some things that that are delightful to be, you know, that the people close to them wanted to show me the secret door in their library that opened and said Sarmodi, which was like their magic word. And, and, you know, the wall moves and it's a secret path to Siegfried's bedroom. I'm sorry. Why did he need a secret path to his bedroom? I don't know that anything about the story is a need. <laughs> well, yeah. right? I think Why that, do you need 55 white tigers? In your yeah, exactly. You don't, need, <laughs> you don't think you, you, there's nothing about this that somebody needs as much as it's right, just right, filling right, the right. emotional right. holes in their hearts. What did you say? Sarmodi? 
is Sarmodi, Siegfried and Roy, Masters of the Impossible. S-A-R-M-O-I-T-I. Sarmodi was their magic word. And, you know, the fact that they had a magic word speaks to the fact that this is uh, a story of a different era, right? And so there's some part of like, it's like a, a childlike mentality to think of the world this way, but also super fascinating in a literary sense. So just figuring out you know, when you have all of these themes rolling around, like what's the first sentence? How, you know, ultimately what writing is and what Janet Malcolm did not get in any way is ultimately what it is, is like, we're putting ink onto dead trees and somehow somebody is staring at that for an extended period of time and transporting themselves to a different part of the planet in a different time uh, around people that they never otherwise would encounter at all. And to make the technical aspects of that after learning about this entire world, that's a real challenge. So, Chris, what's one you did that you enjoyed and you learned a lot? And it was really a pleasure for you for the whole dive and exploration and so forth. So many of them. I mean, not to butter your bread. I loved our week together Uh because I was I was having a really hard time in my life. I was getting divorced. It was raining in New York. And I was I was nervous coming to, to talk to you. It was my first story for The Atlantic. And you couldn't have been kinder. You were super generous with your time. So nice of you. I, I never would put myself on the list of the guy you should hang out with when you're getting divorced. I wouldn't put myself on the list. But you were amazing about it. You you won't remember this at all. You won't remember this moment at all. But we were done. You were you were about to go do the show. I followed you for the whole week. You're about to do the show, and then you're going to disappear into the celebrity ether. And you came up to me and you gave me a hug and you said, "Better days." Yeah. And I was it was exactly what I needed. And, and, and because it was so unexpected, because I thought you were going to, I don't know, be, I thought it might be tricky. And, and it was a wonderful experience. I've had so many. Another one, a Vegas one I had, and this will sound sort of trite, Carrot Top. Because you discovered what about him that was unexpected? What it's like to live your life as the punchline, but actually be the victor. He won. He has a sold-out show at the Luxor every night. A woman laughed so hard when I was at Carrot Top show, that she shit her pants. Like, literally shit her pants in the chair. I went to see him six times that week. I laughed my ass off. And it's Carrot Top. And you go, oh, he's a prop comic. He's a whatever. He's this. He's that. He's a lovely guy named Scott who's got uh-huh. a mansion in Florida and a mansion in Las uh-huh. Vegas. He and goes he's a sweetheart. I met him. He's the loveliest guy. It's the loveliest he's a guy. Sweetheart. We, were, we were in Caesar's Palace. And he goes, oh, my friend Shania wants to see us. Do you want to go see Shania? And I was like... Are we talking about Shania Twain? Like, what are we talking about here? And we spent all night in Shania Twain's villa, naked in a hot tub with Carrot Top. She was not naked in the hot tub. It was Carrot Top and me naked in the hot tub. And I was like, I was like, oh, man, you're just a nice dude. Like, you're just a good guy. And I just enjoyed time with you. Like, those, for me, those are the best stories where you're like, you're surprised by what you find out about the person. So I was surprised with you. I was surprised with Carrot Top. Roger Ebert was a transformational experience. So many times this job is a gift where you just get to spend time with people who are lovely. Well, I'm, I'm glad that whatever I said to, <laughs> en- to encourage you after your divorce got you naked in a hot tub with Carrot Top. I mean, I'm It's a direct line. That. It is a direct it, 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 line. It was, it, was the, it was that weekend. But anyway, listen, fellas, thank you. I'm very grateful to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. My thanks to writers Chris Jones and Michael Mooney. This episode was recorded at CDM Studios in New York City, where produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial, 
Our social media manager is Danielle Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places.